We are continuing this morning with our study through Psalm 119. If you'd like to turn there, we'll be looking at the eighth stanza, which is verses 57 through 64. Um, As we have noted in the past, the psalmist as a whole and this psalm is dealing with the pressures and the challenges of living in a culture that was hostile to his faith. And this psalm makes it clear that he is regularly taking his situation to the Lord in prayer, asking for help. He knows he needs the Lord's help. And most all of his prayers are directly connected with his need. He understands his need for the scriptures. Uh, He asks God to grant him understanding of what the word of God says. He asks God to incline his heart toward the statutes of God. He even goes to the point where he says, God, make me obey. Make me walk in this path. And he's recognizing all the way through, he commits himself to the scriptures, to following the scriptures. But at the same time, he's regularly admitting, I need help to do this. I need help to do this. We'll also include in these stanzas have been a number of other really helpful things. One has been a lament where he has seen the sin and the culture that he's in. And he laments about that. He sees the sin in his own life. And he laments because of that. He also prayed very directly for his own spiritual growth. That's in verses 33 to 40. Just some excellent guide verses there to help us as we pray for our own growth and and our faith. He prays to be for to expressing his desire to be a faithful witness to the Lord, even when he's regularly mocked for his faith. Last week we looked at verses 49 to 56. And they especially emphasize the importance of remembering, remembering the Lord, the work the Lord has done in our life, remembering scriptures that he has brought and brought to bear on our lives in very specific ways. And this remembering of God's work in the past is an important help as we seek to walk out our faith in the present. Um, one thing Steve Haynes is helping us with and another aspect of remembering Remembering history, and Steve's helping us to think through some things in church history that can actually be have a have have a influence on our own life. There's so much of a need for remembering. When the verses that we're considering today, the psalmist speaks of another important truth for believers to remember. We need to remember that it's the Lord who is our inheritance. So let me read for you verses 57 to 64. The Lord is my portion. I have promised to keep your words. I sought your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your word. I considered my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I hastened and did not delay to keep your commandments. The cords of the wicked have encircled me, but I have not forgotten your law. At midnight, I shall rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous ordinances. I'm a companion of all those who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. The earth is full of your loving kindness, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. We're going to be looking at these verses in three different sections. First is in verses 57 to 60. In those verses, the psalmist talks about the Lord being his portion or being his inheritance and the effect that had on how he lived his life. Second is verses 61 to 63. The psalmist talks about the challenges that he receives uh, from unbelievers in the culture, but also the encouragement he gets from fellow Christians. And then finally, verse 64, he talks about the Lord's mercies that are just on full display 
in the earth and what, how encouraging that is to him. So our first main point this morning is this. Believers have the Lord as their portion or their inheritance. Therefore, their life is centered around honoring him. The opening statement is this, the Lord is my portion. And that's really the theme for this whole stanza. Many versions are going to translate the word inheritance instead of portion. And that probably communicates a little better. I know it communicates more clearly to me. My first mind when I think of a portion is I think of like a piece of cake, a portion that has nothing to do with what he's talking about. But my mind just goes there when I think of a portion. But instead, the language here of inheritance is probably a little more clear, even though they are definitely the same, speaking of the same thing. And the context here is that every Israelite had an inheritance in the promised land. And to be forced out of that land, that was your inheritance from the Lord, was a very real and devastating loss to leave the land, to leave your inheritance. There were times when David, David's a possibility of one who may have written this. There was time that David was forced to leave the land of Israel because he was being chased and having to flee from King Saul. Uh, at one point, he was actually staying with the, with the Philistines. So if David wrote this psalm, that could possibly be a context for what he had in mind when he was writing it. We've also mentioned Daniel as a possibility for writing this psalm. And really, this is another example that fits very well with what Daniel's circumstances were. When the Babylonians invaded and defeated the nation of Judah, of course, many people were, were killed. The temple was destroyed and so forth. But there were also many, I mean thousands, that were removed from the land of Judah, removed from the promised land, removed from their inheritance, and forced to live in Babylon instead. Well, when this happened, they were not only separated from their faith because they're separated from the temple and Jerusalem and all that was connected there they're also separated from their land which was their inheritance again from the Lord every Israelite had a family inheritance so their homeland was not just a piece of real estate the whole reality of being God's chosen people was directly connected with the land that they were given and the land that they lived on but for all those Jews who were exiled to Babylon they had lost their most important possession, the land that the Lord had given his people. Instead, they would look around there in Babylon. They're a completely different nation, completely different language, a land full of idolatry. We know that Daniel prayed regularly, and it's interesting, he had a window that opened toward the direction of Jerusalem, and three times a day he would kneel and pray out that window toward Jerusalem just very conscious, obviously, of his homeland and of, uh, and of, and of his, the Jewish roots of his faith. Well, with all that in mind, we read in verse 57, the Lord is my portion. The Lord is my inheritance. So the promised land was not the portion or the inheritance that he's focusing on. It's the Lord himself that he's focusing on. And the truth is that this applies to Christians as well in a very, very... Uh, important application. So we see this next point then that believers have the Lord himself as their own and are therefore lacking and no good thing. We're lacking in nothing. The land, of course, was a very tangible 
um, a very tangible thing to the Jewish people. It's where they lived. But even that land itself was kind of emblematic of their greater inheritance in the Lord. Deuteronomy 32.9, Moses says, The Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is the allotment of his inheritance. So when you're, when you're in a foreign land that is hostile to your faith, that's what you remember about your inheritance. The Lord is your inheritance. You are his inheritance. And so the connection is there more than the land because you're not in the land anymore. And the psalmist is saying that's the chief thing that he has, God himself. That's what he has more than anything else. Now you think about it. He could easily focus on all the things he didn't have any longer. Lots of things just ripped away from them. No doubt, very discouraging to have to deal with. But that's not what he does. That's not what he focuses on. He reminds himself that as a believer, he actually has the one true God as his portion, as his inheritance. And that great and glorious God belongs to him because he's one of his. That is how Daniel would think, and that's how he would pray when he would be tempted to think of all the things he no longer had. He was in exile in a foreign land. The best he could do was face in the direction of Jerusalem when he, when he prayed. But the truth was, the Lord is my portion, and that changes everything. If you're a Christian, the Lord is your inheritance too. Every single one of us, we know, because we talked about it in the first part of our service, we're all sinners. We all fall far short of what God has required of us. Because of our sin, we deserve judgment. We deserve the holy and righteous wrath of God. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Messiah, came to earth as a man to accomplish our salvation. And as a perfectly holy substitute, he endured that wrath of God that we, that we deserve on the cross on behalf of all who would believe in him. So when we receive Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord, we then have the sovereign Lord as our inheritance. Ephesians 1.11 says that in Christ we have been made an inheritance. So the chief thing we have is God himself. But we also, and we also need to consider this, that he is exactly the portion that we need. Ask a question that you don't need to answer out loud, but I want you to think about it. What do you need to be happy? If you could make a list of a couple things that if this would just change, if this would just be better, if I had this, I would really, I would be happy. We all have things like that. How does that fit with the psalmist testimony that the Lord is his portion? There's all kinds of things that I'm sure he wished were different. There's all kinds of things that we wish were different in our own life and uh, situations. But still, he says, the Lord is my portion. And we need to add, he's a fully satisfying portion. It's so easy, and we've all deal with this, it's so easy to be discontent in life. It really is. And if we have not embraced the fact that the Lord is our portion, we will be consistently discontent. With the Lord as our portion, we are never lacking any good thing. Never. 
in Psalms 73, Asaph, that's an amazing psalm. Asaph says this. He says, whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you I desire nothing on earth. Nothing includes a lot. Beside you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Every believer has the Lord himself as their own and are therefore lacking in no good thing. Next, we need to see that to have the Lord as your inheritance is to have him as the Lord and king of your life. So his words are to be kept. His words are to be kept. Read again for you, verse 57. The Lord is my portion. I have promised to keep your words. So the one that we have as our portion is the Lord and king of all. This is not an inheritance that you receive and then you decide what you're going to do with it. You decide how you're going to spend it or you decide if you're going to refuse it and not take it at all. This is not that kind of inheritance. When your inheritance is the one who is the Lord and King of all, what you say is, I promise to keep your words. How else are you going to respond to the one who's the Lord and King of all? You don't say, well, I'll take this, but I don't want that. You don't do that. You've got the one who is your perfect inheritance. So what that means is, since he's our God and our king, then his will for our life is primary. What is his will for our life? Well, it's revealed in the scriptures. In the word of God, it tells us what we're supposed to believe. The word of God tells us how we're supposed to live our life. The word of God tells us what is sinful, and it tells us what is righteous. The word of God reveals the promises of God, promises that we need to be very aware of and to claim. The word of God gives us warnings about multiple things. We need to be aware of those warnings and take heed of them because that's our king and his word is important. So when we receive the Lord as our inheritance, as our savior, as our, then we are promising at the same time to keep his word. So if you have put your faith in Christ, you have actually promised to keep his words just like the psalmist did. So we need to study them. We need to include his words in our prayers. We need to consciously apply his words to our life. So since the Lord is our inheritance, we are responsible to keep his words, and having the Lord is our portion, and keeping his words go hand in hand. They go together. The next thing the psalmist helps us to see is this. To have the Lord as your inheritance is to be committed to pleasing him, to be committed to pleasing him. Verse 58, I sought your favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to your word. So the Lord is our fully satisfying portion. And as we delight ourselves in the Lord, we want to please him. We want to please him with our life. And since we desire to please him with our life, we ask for his favor. We know how desperately we need his grace. We need his undeserved favor. None of us are sufficient in ourselves to live a life that is pleasing to God. And the psalmist said, as we noted in verse 57, I promise to keep your words. And that's exactly the promise, like we said, that he should make because it's the Lord who is his inheritance. Well, in this verse, he's acknowledging once again, as he's done several times, I need help doing that. I need help doing that. I need your favor to enable me to keep the promise I made to keep your words. 
I need that. I need your help. And it says he seeks God's favor with his whole heart. That is representative of how deeply insufficient he recognizes he is. And so he comes to him, come to the Lord humbly with his whole heart, convinced of his weakness and of his need, asking favor of the all-sufficient God who is his inheritance. He's asking God to be gracious to him according to his word. That means according to what the word has demonstrated as far as God being a gracious God, I ask you to be gracious to me in that way. The Bible speaks much of God giving grace to people um, who don't deserve it. It mentioned a few examples. The Lord graciously promised to Adam and Eve that the seed of the woman would crush Satan's head. And he made that promise in the midst of rebuking them for their sin. That's grace. The Lord called Abraham. Abraham was a pagan, living a pagan lifestyle. He called him and made a covenant with him to be the father of the Jews. And as a part of that covenant, he promised there would be one who would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. That's amazing, an amazing, gracious promise made to a pagan man. That's grace. The Lord called David to be the king of Israel, even though he was the youngest and least qualified of all of Jesse's sons. There are examples of God's grace all through the scripture. So that's why the psalmist says, be gracious to me according to your word. According to the way you've shown grace to others, I ask for that same grace for myself, according to your word. Of course, when we get to the New Testament, it's probably even more obvious. We are saved by grace. There is not a single person who has been or will be saved by their works. None of us have anything to boast about in our life. It's all of God's grace. Salvation is of God's grace from the beginning to the end and all the way through. So we too, again, must pray to God to be gracious to us according to his word. And we trust God's promises in this. Well, then we see the psalmist getting more personal about the direction his life was going. Verses 59 and 60. He says, I considered my ways and turned my feet to your testimonies. I hastened and did not delay to keep your commandments. So from these verses, we see the next point, which is this. One who is committed to pleasing the Lord will prayerfully consider their ways and promptly turn from their sin to better follow his commandments. Since the Lord is his portion, the psalmist naturally promises to keep his words. In order to keep his words, he's dependent on God's grace to give him the desire and ability to do that. Now the psalmist gets even more real with us. By God's grace, he has considered his ways. He has thought carefully about the way he is living his life. He's thought about this as he's been considering the scriptures, and he sees what the scripture says he should be, and he sees, I don't really match up to that. He's seeing these things. He's given him a heart to really want to please the one who is, in, who is his inheritance. And so he turns his feet in the right direction. He turns his feet toward honoring the testimonies of God with his life. It's important to note the sequence here. Before he changes his ways, he considers his ways. It starts by being honest with God about what our sin is. 
And to be honest about our sin, it means that we are comparing our life to what he says it should be. Most of, most of us very likely have ways of thinking about things that are not what they should be. We don't think in the way that we should. They fall short of loving God with all of our mind. We all fall short of that. But oftentimes, kind of the, the, way we, the way we have learned to think about things, we've kind of become accustomed to that, and sometimes we don't even consider that there could be some issues there. Um, most of us have things that are a part of our conversation, the way we communicate with people, that we probably ought to reconsider how we say things or if we say things or we things we shouldn't say or how we say it. There are things in the way we live, the things, the habits we have, the habits that we should have that we don't have. There's all kinds of things that are there that we should consider with our mind first. And then as we consider our ways, trust God to give us the grace to turn our feet toward walking toward his testimonies. Because when you think about it, and unfortunately I can give lots of testimony about this, if, our, if considering our ways is done in a superficial way, then the response is going to be a superficial response. So we consider our ways carefully before we actually know, and then we know how to turn, which direction he wants us to go. And then verse 60, he tells us that once he seriously considered his ways, he responded quickly. He didn't make excuses for himself. He didn't put things off until it was a more convenient time. He hastened and did not delay to keep the commandments of God. It's interesting how he emphasizes this. It's almost like the Department of Redundancy Department because he's saying the same thing in two different ways. He says, first he says he hastened. So he moved quickly. He moved promptly to do what he knew was right and God-honoring. But not only did he hasten, he also made haste. He didn't delay. So his obedience was instantaneous, which is quite impressive. There's a quote on your outline by a man named John Morrison. He described these words of the psalmist like this. He said, it's unsafe. It's unreasonable. It's highly criminal to hesitate to carry that reformation into effect, which conscience dictates. So when the Spirit moves our heart to repent of sin, we shouldn't put it off. When God is in his grace, makes it clear that there's things we need to cease doing and things we need to start doing instead to better please him, we should hasten and not delay. One example, there's multiple examples. One example is we see this in the New Testament. Jesus told the story of the prodigal son. He left his father, spent the inheritance that was his, Actually, it wasn't supposed to be his. It was after his father. His father was still alive, but he gave it to him anyway. And so he had this money. He spent it in wild and foolish ways. He was living in sin. But then the Lord brought him to his senses. He did not delay. He immediately returned to his father and repented of his actions. He did the right thing at that point. He did not delay. He hastened. Morrison uses three words there to describe it. First, he says it's unsafe to put these things off. We probably all know that the longer we put something off, the easier it comes becomes to keep putting it off and never really do it. He says it's unreasonable. 
because if our Lord and Savior, our Lord and Savior is making something clear in his word that we are called to do, making excuses is unreasonable when you're talking to the one who is the Lord and King of your life. He even says it's criminal. It's criminal to hesitate because we are disobeying the sovereign Lord who has saved us and brought us into his family. How dare we refuse him? Where else are we going to go? So since he is our inheritance, our whole life is centered around honoring him. Well, that brings us to our second main point, verses 61 to 63. Let me do those verses for you again. He says, the cords of the wicked have circled me, but I have not forgotten your law. At midnight I shall rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous ordinances. I'm a companion of all those who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. So from these verses we see our second main point, which is a life of pleasing the Lord, the inheritance of all believers, will be tested by unbelievers, but encouraged by companions who fear the Lord. So reminded once again of the context in which the psalmist is living, He's in a culture that is not encouraging his faith. It, it, they're, they're going the opposite direction. That's why it was so crucial for him to embrace the reality that it was the Lord who was his inheritance. It wasn't his culture that was his inheritance. It was the Lord that is his inheritance. He could not find his ultimate identity in the culture that he lived in. That wouldn't work. So because this was true, as he begins to pursue the Lord as his, as his life, as his inheritance, as his portion, there's going to be pushback as he does that. So these verses tell us first that believers may find themselves surrounded by those who reject the Lord and his word, but God will enable them to persevere in their faith. He says in verse 61, the cords of the wicked have encircled me. Some versions translate this as the bands of the wicked. In other words, he was surrounded by people who did not share his faith. In fact, they were opposed to his faith. David, of course, had many experiences with this. One of the Psalms in which he speaks of this is Psalm 18. I want to read a portion of that for you. In Psalm 18, he's talking about, is written in the context of the constant threats that he was receiving from King Saul. Here's what David said in uh, Psalm 18, 4 through 6. He says, the cords of death encompassed me. The torrents of ungodliness terrified me. The cords of Sheol surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried to my God for help. He heard my voice out of his temple, and my cry for help before him came, and before, came unto his ears. So he speaks of the threat of death, torrents of ungodliness, that were surrounding him, hellish influences all around, but he called to the Lord for help, and the Lord heard his voice and delivered him. Daniel was also surrounded by unbelievers who at time were intent on seeking him killed, but he too called out to the Lord and was, and was delivered. So neither David nor Daniel could be bribed or bullied into sin, but the danger was there. After the psalmist made his declaration that the Lord was his inheritance and then considering his ways and hastening to obey, it was inevitable that his commitment was going to be put to the test. 
but by God's grace, he stood firm. He would not be shamed into forgetting God's law. How could he do that? He knew that the Lord Jehovah was his whole life. How could he be shamed in turning against him? He knew there was no one or nothing that could satisfy him like the Lord could. That way he was his portion. So God had been so gracious to him in his dark hours. How, how could he turn away just because of threats and peer pressure from unbelievers? So even if these bands of wicked men were able to take away his income, to take away his position, even take away his life, his true treasure was beyond their reach because it's the Lord who is his inheritance, his true treasure. Again, important example for us. And then in the midst of these pressures, he lets us know next that giving thanks to God for his righteous ways can turn away fear and sorrow while making room for praise. Verse 62 says, At midnight I shall rise to give thanks to you because of your righteous ordinances. Uh, back in the previous stanza, verse 55, he said something similar. He says there, O Lord, I remember your name in the night, and I keep your law. Here in verse 62, it's at midnight that he rises to give thanks to the Lord. So what's the point of emphasizing the night? Uh, it may be that he wants to make it clear that whether it's day or whether it's night, there is always a place, there is always a time, always a reason to give praise and thanksgiving to our God. And um, even at night when most people are sleeping, there, is, there are times where that's going to fit, where, it's, where we can give praise. And I think Revelation 4 and 5 kind of give us a, a, an imagery here, the fact, kind of remind us that in the heavenlies, praise is going on constantly. There is never a time that there is not praise and worship. Uh, in, in Revelation 4, we see the angelic beings proclaiming, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and who is to come. And then in chapter 5 of Revelation, what they're, all, what they're also proclaiming with a loud voice that says, As worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. So whenever we give praise and thanksgiving to the Lord, like we did earlier when we were singing, even when we do it in the night, we are joining with choirs of praise that are, that are constantly taking place at all times. And that's really pretty amazing to think about that. But I think there may be something else going on here, too, when he talks about the night. It's not uncommon for pressures, concerns, fears to especially get our attention at night. And sometimes it always feels like it grabs hold of us and it's like it's not going to let go. David gives us multiple examples of this also in the Psalms. Back in chapter 6, in Psalm chapter 6, David is in a time there of great despair. There are threats from the enemies of God that he's having to deal with. And as we read this Psalm, we notice that much of his lament over these things took place at night. I'm going to read for you Psalm 6. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed. My soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness. For there is no mention of you in death. And Sheol, who will give you thanks? 
I'm weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. My eye has wasted away with grief and has become old because of all my adversaries. Depart from me, all you who do iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back. They shall suddenly be ashamed. So he says every night his bed, his couch, swims with tears because of the grief that is just so weighing so heavy on him. And you can see it's especially hard at night. But notice at the end of that psalm, he was confident that the Lord had heard his prayers. Deep, emotional, sorrowful prayers, but confident prayers. And he was confident that the Lord had heard him. I think that's probably what's going on here in Psalm 119 as well. Because in verse 61, the bands of wicked men were surrounding him. But in verse 62, he rises at midnight to give thanks to God. He knows the Lord has answered his prayers. He knows the Lord enables him to hold firm to God's law. And he says he gives thanks for God's righteous judgments. That's interesting. That his thanksgiving includes a recognition that God will judge the wicked in his time and in his way. That's something he delights in. It's something that unbelievers should be terrified by. But but here he's encouraged by it. And as we give thanks... It opens the door for even greater praise. So once again, just a great example to us. So when we're feeling overwhelmed because of pressures that we're under, give thanks to the Lord. If it's happening during the day or even if it's happening during the night, our God gives us the grace that we need to endure and to hold fast the things that we know are right. One further way that the Lord helps us when we are in times of testing is this. Those who have the Lord as their portion will have fellow saints as their companions. They will have fellow saints as their companions. Verse 63, he says, I'm a companion of all those who fear you and of those who keep your precepts. The psalmist clearly loved and delighted in serving the Lord and loving and honoring him as inheritance in life was really more important than anything else. He had come to understand that even more clearly than he probably did before. But thankfully here, he's not the only one who believes like he believes. There are other kindred spirits around him. They too had the Lord as their inheritance. They too were fighting the good fight of staying true to the Lord in spite of the peer pressure around them to do otherwise. And so they too were living their life as people who were actively seeking to keep the precepts of God in the way they lived. So it only makes sense that these fellow believers would be his companions. That's the way God intended it to be. That's one of the most important aspects of being a part of a local church. It gives us the opportunity to be companions with others who fear the Lord. We need that. We all need that. I know there there are people who profess to be Christians who seem to have little or no desire for fellowship With other Christians, being a part of a local church is not a priority. There's nothing in Scripture that can give any kind of justification for that. Nothing. 
a love for the Lord will show itself in a love for his people. It will. Doesn't mean there won't be challenges. Not everybody's as easy to love as I am or as you are. We all have rough edges. We all have weaknesses that can be very irritating to others. But love is patient. Love endures. And this one, love does not keep, an, keep a list of wrongs suffered. Because if you keep that list, it's going to be hard to love. <laughs> we need each other. And praise the Lord, he has given companions so that we can walk out our faith together. The psalmist closes this stanza with verse 64. The earth is full of your loving kindness, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. It's a very encouraging verse. It almost seems at first to be a little bit maybe out of context. But it isn't. Our final point then is this, number three. In spite of challenges in life, the one who has the Lord as their inheritance will see, enjoy, and be encouraged by the mercies of God that are present in creation. So the psalmist gives praise to the Lord by saying that the earth was everywhere full of God's loving kindness or of his mercy. Well, what does that mean? Well, God is the creator, and he created men and women with needs. And he actually provided in his creation for those needs that we have. Let me just give you a few examples. We need a solid place to live. We can't live just floating around. We need a solid place to live. Um, the earth is kind of hanging down in space, hanging on nothing, but it gives firm footing for all who live on the earth. We need oxygen to breathe. God in his mercy provides oxygen. We need food and water. God in his mercy provides food and water. We need some manner of shelter. God has given the ability to build things that can be used as shelters or even use a natural shelter. We need the ability to communicate. God in his mercy has provided language. We need things to function as expected in dependable ways. So that's why there's things like math and biology and anatomy and just general science type things. Those things come into play. They're, they're important. I always remember when I was on my roof several years ago and I was doing some painting, I thought, Lord, thank you so much for friction. Because there was no friction, I wouldn't be able to sit on the stand on this roof. We need to be able to depend on things like that. And you can. Because your God is the creator and his mercy is in all his creation. But not only has God provided these things in creation, he's done it in delightful ways. The solid place that you're living on is amazing in its diversity and natural beauty. And he's given you eyes that can see the color and enjoy all that is mercifully there just so you have a place where you can stay, where you can stand. Also, when you think about, yes, he's given us oxygen. He's also enabled you to smell. And there are lots of really nice fragrances to be able to enjoy as we're breathing in that oxygen. 
Yes, he gives us food and water, but there is like an endless supply of flavors, textures, types of food. He could have just given you one thing, and that's, I mean, he didn't have to do all that. That's because he's a God, he's a God who is good and merciful. We're probably going to all eat something different for lunch. We have those options because we have a good and merciful God. Yes, he's given us the ability to build shelters, but it's better than he's given that to birds, too. They can build nests. Most of us don't want to live in a nest. But he's given us the ability to build things that are really are. They're much better. People have figured out air conditioning. People have figured out stoves, microwaves. People have figured out running water. That's a big deal. People have figured out furniture, beds, washing machines. I mean, the list can just kind of go on and on of all the stuff that is in your apartment or in your house that makes it more than just a shelter from the rain or the snow. There's all kinds of cool things in there that makes it a delightful place. Even if it's very plain, it's still better than living in a cave. He's not only given us language, he has given great diversity in language. Great diversity. He has made it possible, not just just in the different languages that there are, but even within each language itself, to be able to write music, to write songs, all manner of books that are available through those words, communicating in ways that can be very enjoyable and pleasing. So the earth is full of the mercies of God. That's the point. It's full of the mercies of God. What a blessing that is. What does that have to do with God being our inheritance? How does that help us to see that in himself, our great God has given us everything we need so that we're lacking in nothing? Well, it tells us that if God is so thorough in displaying his mercies in the created world, can we not trust him to be equally thorough in providing for our hearts? Of course you can. Look at this quote from Charles Bridges. The mercy that the believer sees on every side is to him a pledge and an earnest of that mercy which his soul needs within. Do you have what you need to live a godly life in a culture that's hostile to your faith? Yes, you do. And it's not that God just gives enough just to get by. Just like his mercy in creation, he is extravagant in his provision for our soul. To say that the Lord is our portion is to say that the lines have fallen to us in pleasant places. And just to remind what Asaph said, he said, Our flesh and our heart may fail, but God is the strength of our heart and our portion forever. So no matter what your situation may be, as believers, we are greatly blessed because the Lord is our inheritance. Lord, we thank you again for your word. I thank you for the psalmist that you inspired to write these things, things that were very pertinent to him and his particular situation and circumstances. But Lord, they apply to us too. Thank you so much for these words that remind us 
of what a glorious inheritance you are for us. It is so easy to grab onto stuff that the world offers and maybe maybe it's just even to, to, to put people in too high a place. There are so many things, and those are blessings, and we thank you for those blessings. It's part of your mercy to us. It's part of those companions. But ultimately, we the ultimate provision you have given us is yourself. Teach us to grow in our delight in you as our all-sufficient inheritance, our all-sufficient portion in life. Lord, whatever our circumstances might be, and there's lots of variety, I'm sure, in our circumstances here this morning, whatever they may be, I ask, Holy Spirit, that you would encourage us and grant us the confidence that you are there to help us. If we need to lament, if we need to cry out in the night because of things that are just so overwhelmingly difficult, we cry out knowing that you hear and knowing that you answer, and knowing that you will help us. If you're one who's never put your faith in Christ, I would invite you to do that. A prayer like this would be a way to start. Lord, I realize that I'm sinful. I realize I don't measure up. I know I don't. I try to make other things my inheritance, make other things my portion. And sometimes it feels like it works for a while. But Lord, I need you. I confess my sin. And I thank you that Jesus Christ paid the price for my sin. And I want to receive him as my Savior, and I commit my life to him as my Lord, as my King, as my inheritance. If you want to talk in more detail about that commitment, you can make a note in your tear-off, or those who are watching online can reach out to us through the website. It is the name.